Hello and welcome to Frameline. I'm Barbara Gosovsky here with my favorite co-host, Courtney Small. Hello, how are you today? Good, how are you? Oh, not too bad. Good. I'd like to remind everyone that you can listen to us at iHeartRadio right now, as well as here at RadioRegion.com. So welcome, everyone. We're very excited about this show. Courtney's going to talk about some reviews. I'm going to join him on Maria by Callis. It's a new documentary that's coming out. It's opening tomorrow in Toronto. But first, I have an interview that I conducted with the managing director of the Hot Doc Cinema, Alan Black. We're talking about the third Hot Docs Podcast Festival, which is going to happen November 1st to the 5th at the cinema. And before I play the interview, I'm going to tell you all that you can find out more information about this. It's one of the only, if not the only, international podcast festival in the world. And you can get info at hotdocs.ca. There's so many things happening during this festival, during just the few days that it's happening at the cinema. I'm going to shut up and I'm going to let Alan tell you all about it because he's so eloquent. So here it is. Hot Docs Cinema hosted the first international podcast festival, which was really the beginning of this. Um, before that, people had celebrated podcast International Podcast Day. There was, I read about a celebration of podcasting in India, but it wasn't like a festival, a giant festival. So, of course, this begs the question, Alan, how did this come about? How, did, is this your baby? Well, it, it is. So it's a series of, uh, of uh, coincidences and blind luck. But, uh, you know, I had just gotten into podcasting in maybe 2015. Um, we, had, we had done an event at, at the cinema, a series of comedy, uh, stand-up comedy films. And at the time, a lot of stand-up comedians had podcasts. So I started to listen to a few. There was this comedian named Neil Brennan who had a podcast that I liked, uh, and this podcast called The Nerdist and WTF with Mark Marin. Uh, and I started to listen to their podcast in preparation for some of these comedians coming to the cinema. Uh, and I, I fell in love with podcasting for a lot of reasons. Uh, it was, uh, it was intimate uh, and it was very specific and you listened via headphones and it kind of like was piped directly into your brain in a way other forms of media are not. Uh, and they were the, you know, some were an hour and some were 20 minutes and they were the right chunks for doing the things you do on a daily basis, like taking the subway or going to the gym or doing dishes. And I really loved them. Um, and simultaneously at the same time, the cinema was just, you know, the cinema was a few years old. Uh, and we were trying to find new ways to use a cinema space and bring new audiences and do cool things in a live context. Uh, and one of our one of our one of our friends uh, introduced us to the people from a, a popular podcast called The Moth, which was a storytelling podcast. Uh, and we hooked up with The Moth and thought we would do the first Toronto performance of The Moth. Uh, and we put tickets on sale, and they sold out in like uh, a day and a half. Uh, and the show was incredible, and our audience loved it, and people were like, more of this, please. So over the next year, we did a few more live podcast events, uh, all of which were really cool and great events and, and really like sparked our imaginations and the imagination of our audience. 
and as we were planning for the coming year, we thought that we may as well, if we're going to do this, we might as well contextualize it within the context of what we do and also just make it, uh, formalize it in a way that it's not just these ad hoc events with no real uh, reason. Uh, so we decided we would create a weekend of, of live podcast events uh, and we bring to Toronto a bunch of, of podcasts which uh, had never really come to Canada before. So we had shows like A Song Exploder and Reply All and Criminal and Mystery Show. And then a few great Canadian podcasts uh, like Grown Ups Read Things They Wrote as Kids uh, and a podcast from, uh, the, from the Canada Land Podcast Network and, uh, and some CBC shows. Uh, and it was really exciting. Like people came out and were really excited to, to that this was happening. It wasn't the first podcast festival in the world. There were others. Uh, they were typically more specific. Like there was a comedy podcast festival in LA, and there was this festival in Chicago called the Third Coast Festival, which is kind of the big industry festival, but it's more real uh, people pushing the forum, and it's you know a get together for industry types. And this was. I think, at least in Canada, the first real big uh, publicly focused podcast festival. And it was really exciting. Um, uh, yeah, I think we got about 5,000 people came through the doors over the course of a weekend. We sold out a bunch of shows. Uh, it, the, the events were incredible. Like Each one was its own very special experience, which was never going to be duplicated. More akin to like, you know, live theater or something, something else. And then it gave these people, you know, you've been listening to these, these podcasts and the hosts of those podcasts and only imagining what they look like. Uh, and you could see them live and in the flesh on a stage and you were in the same room and it was, there's something electric about it. So we, uh, so it was great. And we did a uh, second year last year and we brought a bunch of, uh, bunch of cool shows, uh, again. Uh, and we expanded a little bit more. What we noticed in year one was that there was a Canadian, a, a burgeoning Canadian podcasting and audio community that never didn't really have the opportunity to get together in one place over the course of a weekend. So we created some, some, uh, informal panels and networking opportunities. And we brought the, we created a side of the, of the, uh, event that was really focused at bringing the actual people in the industry together. Uh, and then this year in year three, I think we've seen all of our work in the past years coalesce and, 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 and we now have this thing, which is a real, you know, it started as kind of a lark, but now it's this festival that uh, in the Canadian podcast industry in, industry in particular, it plays a role and has a function and is well known and is an important place to come. Uh, and, you know, for the, uh, for the audience, we've decided that we wanted to showcase more Canadian shows and, and really put them in the spotlight, hopefully internationally as well. Uh, and we want to take some more chances and bring some things that uh, may not be as recognizable to a broad audience, but are really people doing the best work in, in the medium. So we're bringing shows like Reveal uh, and ESPN 30 for 30 uh, and Nancy, these podcasts, which are truly amazing podcasts, like some of the best storytelling in any medium. And we're bringing them to the stage and introduce it. Like hopefully the, the fans of those shows will come out. And then hopefully also all of the people that are coming for the conference uh, and generally are going to come as well and be exposed to these new things that they might not have listened to otherwise. Mm -hmm. and it, it's such an amazing way to bring what Hot Docs is all about 
into a modern sort of context. You were you were talking about contextualizing the festival in in terms of what hot dogs does, what the cinema does, um, and you were also uh, you know talking about you just mentioned storytelling. So here we have a form of storytelling. Absolutely. I mean, in year one, it was it was a bit of a struggle trying to convince my colleagues. Uh, I mean, in all due respect, everyone gave us a lot of freedom to put on this festival that wasn't exactly uh, in line with Hot Talks's, you know, mission. But I, I think it was a natural fit. We we really made everyone understand that this was just another form of nonfiction storytelling. It wasn't film necessarily, but it was uh, people telling stories about human beings, about things that were important. They were exposing new points of view and doing all the things that great documentaries do. And at the time, and even more so now, I truly believe that some of the best nonfiction storytelling is happening in the audio medium. In fact, there's a lot of um, two things I noticed over the past couple of years. One is that when I started when I got into documentary, the documentary field 15 years ago, it was this time where digital cameras were becoming available for the first time, uh, and it was becoming cheaper, and everyone wanted to get into documentaries. You know, I think Super Size Me and Michael Moore had just happened, and people, it was like the Wild West. Like People were like, I don't know how to make money with this, but I can pick up a camera cheaply and go make a documentary. Uh, and podcasting now feels very much the same. You grab a microphone and work out of your basement and create a podcast. And so, and they're realizing that they don't need film necessarily to tell their stories. And in fact, in a lot of ways, a lot of documentary filmmakers make the mistake of thinking that the story they want to tell is best serviced by it being a film, when in fact, a lot of uh, documentary stories aren't particularly visual, and they're not well serviced by being a film. They could be better serviced by being told in an audio format, where uh, a lot of a lot of what's happening is left to the audience's imagination. And so we're seeing things like last year we, we did an event with Missing Richard Simmons, which was pitched and started as a documentary, but uh, but the, uh, the creator realized very quickly that actually it was a better told in the audio format. And we're seeing a lot of that, and we're seeing a lot of documentary filmmakers now work in both mediums and realize that there's some stories that just work better uh, as audio. Um, and I, you know, I think in in the past couple of years too, there's a there's a real breakdown in in formats. I think you know uh, people are doing uh, the virtual reality work, and people are working in these non traditional forms of nonfiction storytelling. And this is just another arm of that. A lot of people aren't just working, especially you know, with Netflix and and YouTube and the online platforms. Non documentary can be anything. It doesn't have to be the ninety minute theatrical version of your story. There's fifteen minute things, and there's things like making a murderer, which are eight hour documentaries, mm -hmm. and there are things that are meant to be consumed in new and interesting ways with live music and live accompaniment and stories that are told, you know, in in the context of uh, op docs in the New York Times, and and they're all over the place. And so I think the form has loosened up, and I you I could argue that. Uh, podcasting is as valid a form of nonfiction storytelling as any other. Mm -hmm. the, the pod, the podcast festival, I think, is so interesting because we have, 
you know, this year we have maybe 18 or 19 different podcasts and they're all so different, both in terms of content and form. They're do, telling stories in different ways. They're using different techniques. Uh, some of them are funny. Some of them are enlightening. Some of them are, are, are touching and sad. And, uh, what we're offering is an opportunity to, uh, to find new stories and new ways of storytelling and come through for We're hoping that people will come for the whole weekend and discover all of these new uh, podcasts and stories that they just wouldn't have discovered on their own in a, in a universe where you go on iTunes and there's like a uh, half a million different podcasts. Uh, and you know, you can't, you can't watch them all. We're curating a weekend of events that, uh, you know, might be outside the comfort zone of some, but if they, if they take a chance, they're going to find something they love. Mm-hmm. Now there's such a variety of podcasts and such a variety of people that you've brought together. How, how did you even begin to, to do that, to organize that? I know you have, you know, now your, your, your third year of experience doing this, but, but really what, tell us a bit about what it takes to organize yeah, so so I, I, I work with, uh, we have a, a lead curator and programmer for this festival. His name is Will DeNovi. He's a brilliant programmer uh, and really plugged into uh, to what is good storytelling across all medium. Uh, and he keeps a, a long list of, of things that we'd like to see at the festival. Uh, and it's a combination of things that we think people will like, things that people currently do like and are very popular and will bring people out to the festival guaranteed. Um uh, and some stuff that, you know, is to, to his own personal taste. Um, but what we're trying to do is find a really good balance of Canadian and international, of, uh, different types of voices, different people, uh, different kinds of storytelling. Some, you know, we have ESPN 30 for 30, which is very much a sports podcast. And we have Startup, which is about tech and entrepreneurial, the entrepreneurial spirit. We have uh, Criminal, which is a true crime thing. So we really want to find, we, we want to represent everything that's being done at its highest levels. Uh, and then we're, we, we have these two Canadian showcases as well, where we're, so Podcast Playlist, uh, CBC's show, which is kind of like a mixtape for podcasts, and it's really all about discovering new shows. They're going to host um, two showcases, one on opening night and one on closing night, which will feature five to six different Canadian podcasts, some of which you know and some of which you don't. Uh, and it's really a chance to, it's kind of like a, it's a little bit like a variety show uh, and all the podcasts are entirely different, but it'll give you a chance to discover these new Canadian shows, which are terrific. Uh, uh, and, um, and you may not have listened to otherwise. Mm-hmm. So in closing, is there anything you want to highlight? I, I mean, for me, I mean, there's there's the easy, you know, we were we're doing a, we have a show with of Lavar Burton Rees, Lavar Burton being a former Star Trek cast member and the host of Reading Rainbow and and Kunta Kinte from Roots, uh, and his show will be packed. He's just going to read a story over the course of an hour with musical accompaniment, uh, and it will spark, uh, you know, it'll bring back a lot of nostalgia for people that watch reading rainbow as a kid. And it's going to be, you know, he's an incredible actor and performer and that will be great. Uh, for me, uh, the, the, there's a, 
the startup was one of the podcasts that really got me into podcasting, went down the rabbit holes, one of the first serialized podcasts uh, about the, the, the startup uh, podcast company called Gimlet. Uh, and they told the serialized story of the creation of this podcast entity, which is now one of the big podcasting networks in the world. Uh, and they've just over five or six seasons told some of the most incredible stories that are primarily about starting a business or success and failure, but there's so much in there that's relatable to anyone who wants to accomplish anything. And and that show was really meaningful to me. And they're going to put on a great show with the new story. And similarly, ESPN 30 for 30, I'm not even a big sports guy, but the ESPN 30 for 30, they, you know, they have a series of documentary films that they've been doing for a few years and they spun that off into a podcast and they're telling stories, not about who won or lost uh, or, you know, it's not about the stats, the sports stats. It's about these stories behind the stories they've done. They did a, a really great podcast uh, a couple of years ago called hoodies up about LeBron James and the Miami heat uh, wearing hoodies uh, in the wake of the Trayvon Martin shooting. Uh, and these stories like these really deep dives into these uh the sports stories that have you know very little to do with the sports and have a lot to do with the humanity behind uh, what's going on on the court or on the field. And, and that podcast is incredible, and they've never done a live show in Canada, so this is going to be really exciting as well. Great. Okay. Thank you very much, Alan Black. Thank you. Okay. So that was Alan Black talking about Hot Docs Podcast Festival, November 1st to the 5th. It's coming up next week. So I recommend, highly recommend that you go to hotdocs.ca and check out all the things that are happening and see which tickets are still available and get some tickets and go. It's, uh, it's you know, as you heard, it's going to be quite an amazing event. And, uh, you know, it's it's unique. So that's another reason to love it besides the variety of stuff that's happening. Okay, Courtney and I are going to now switch over to talk about what's going to be playing in theaters. And there's one film that we want to talk about called Maria by Callis. Opens tomorrow in Toronto. And then it'll spread the week after, you know, to other cities. And then the week after that in other cities. And uh, sort of become a a phenomenon of sorts, I guess. It, It has played at a number of festivals, including the the last edition of TIFF and I'll just tell you Maria by Callis if you sort of recognize the name is about Maria Callis the famous one of the greatest opera singers in history and one of the most famous and it tells the story her story in her own words and what the filmmaker has done Tom Wolf he has used unknown footage and unseen photographs, personal Super 8 films, intimate letters, which are then read in voiceover, rare behind the scenes archival footage, and can- and he, he sort of uses this candid conversation she did with David Frost that had been considered lost. He uses that sort of uh, like what she says there also as a bit of a, a spine for the film. So this is uh, his way, uh, his super fan way of allowing her for the first time to speak for herself because she was a very public figure. Things happened, uh, especially scandals and all her ups and downs and especially her downs were obviously, as you know, that happens with a lot of famous people, were covered in the public eye. 
And in those cases, especially way back in the past, then people didn't get a chance to really answer back. It's not like she had her own Twitter handle and she could, you know, answer the things that were happening. So you get to hear finally her voice and you get to see these these rare glimpses of her. And it's full of famous people like Aristotle Onassis, Marilyn Monroe, tons of actors, Liz Taylor, John F. Kennedy. And, of course, there's concert, concert footage, the footage of her performing, and there's a lot of it. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a very intimate portrait, and I would say it's a kind of a definitive f- fan-made film. Like a fan made this, and it's a great thing for other fans. And as someone who's not a super fan of hers, I found that sometimes um, his use of concert footage, for example, sometimes when she's singing, he allows the entire piece to play out, right? The entire aria that she's singing. And so when you do that, there's a pause in sort of the flow of the film. And I found that sometimes that was at the, the cost of the film itself, that things sort of moved it, with their own log- logic, and it was it was not necessarily a film kind of logic, a, you know, a good pace for the film. I think it's it's a, a perfect intimate portrait and uh, really interesting glimpse in, into it. But I think it requires a certain uh, patience if you're not a super fan. If you're not captivated by this woman, you may have a little bit of problems. So it, I really am recommending it for those people. Who, you know who you are. And for others, I'm saying, well, gauge and see. Well, I think for those not initiated, like I knew nothing of her going into this film. So I agree it requires a certain amount of patience. I, I do feel that the film is longer than it needs to be. Um, and some of that would have been reduced had you cut the musical moments by by a hair we didn't necessarily need to see the full um arias as you as you pointed out but there was also part of me that kind of enjoyed that it had the swagger to to show the performance in its entirety like i felt you would get a, a sense of who she is her confident demeanor you know a bit of her softer side and then if you're not into opera or you've never been to the opera we're gonna give you a little taste like i felt like i was getting like you know three or four acts of a of an opera or various different operas and i found that was kind of interesting to see her art in its purest form and in a complete yeah and in a complete form i can see that i can see that completely and i can appreciate that and i did appreciate that i just i just sat there wondering you know if you have no idea and if you you know let's face it not everybody loves it even if they don't know it like the reason I want to recommend it is because you don't if you don't know opera, if you haven't been exposed to it, you don't know if you like her or not. She's so captivating and has captivated people with her voice alone. And now, as you say, when you see her in performance, and I would argue as well, when you see her in these intimate moments or you hear what her thoughts and feelings were at the time, that you're getting a more complete picture of an individual, of an artist, Right. And yep. you're getting sort of an inside look and you can get that when she's performing and you can get that just by watching her face. It's very expressive. And, and you know, as an artist 
who performs, you have to be expressive. And she had that gift. And mm. that's why, you know, people flocked to see her. And it also the the musical moments are well timed and well placed. Like they arrange the the various uh, operas in nice sequence in relation to what she's experiencing at the time. So when she's having you know the moment of I've basically leaving my husband for Aristotle Onassis, who we started off as friends, but we became much more. There's like a kind of robust almost flirtatious kind of song that plays with it and the 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 music is well used i think her personality though is what's really captivating i I think that's that's (laughs) and that's why i say like if you were to cut some of the um opera moments i would be completely fine because what really wakes you up and what keeps you going is seeing her um not only be somewhat persecuted for her art because she's a a great singer, but as a woman, there's a lot of extra expectation put on her, whether it be by theater owners or the press that she is not, you know, that they wouldn't put on a male performer. And then especially when she starts to, you know, become friendly with Mr. Onassis, the way how that scandal erupts and, you know, how she, they essentially try to take away her voice or her narrative is also really interesting because she's just a really confident determined person and one of my favorite moments is when she decides that she's just going to take a break she's given the world so much she's made a lot of money she's going to sit down and enjoy it you know and you see a completely different side of her and when people try and push her to, to a certain thing you she really she still lets you know that i might be taking a break but i'm not a pushover mm-hmm. you know and yeah. her her personality and the word that keeps coming to my mind is swagger. She's just got this <laughs> this really cool swagger. You know, I think you made reference to Twitter. I think she would she would have been probably eaten alive in a Twitter um, world that we live in now because that type of confidence doesn't necessarily translate when people are are reading it. Mm-hmm. But hearing her talk in interviews and stuff is like, oh, I, you know, I really want to know more about her. Mm. It's you know what? It's when I hear the personal. When I hear the letters, and that's when she's expressing personally her feelings and herself. And sometimes she sort of betrays herself in a way. Um, she is an artist. She's a bit delicate, uh, f- a uh, delicate flower at times, as in she gets her feelings hurt, as in she she earns the 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 title diva. I found that it was actually really interesting. And in fact, there was a tension. There's an te- interesting tension uh, that I enjoyed between when, for example, she would get let go or there'd be this you know, public scandal about how she's so difficult to work with. And then she would be writing to someone about her feelings and how could they say this about herself. But she would, when she, the more details she went into, the more I could see why someone would find her difficult. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like She I, betrayed her true self, which, you know, good for her. It's, it's not easy. It wasn't easy back then, especially for a woman. As you say, there was all this pressure on her. But let's face it. She's, she's not a, a, a star. She was a star, but she wasn't a go- like 
she wasn't perfect. No, she wasn't. But I feel like they they pushed her into becoming a diva. I feel. Ah, uh, no, no, no. I don't think you have met performers. <laughs> true, very true. <laughs> you have to have an amazing ego to go out, and I think that to go out in an opera and command that size of stage and that size of cast. And to put out that kind of voice, that's a special kind of singing. Uh, and yes, all power to her. I think she needed a certain amount of ego to survive, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that comes at a cost. Yeah, but it, I think you You, you need... can't be that easy to get along with all the time. And sometimes I think when she was... And and this is the interesting, right? The tension, yep. the interesting push and pull of, of the film. It, it's like... You know, all my sympathies are with her. And then sometimes it's like, oh, but, you know, maybe that person had a point because you're you're kind of having a little bit of a, a little bit of a fit right now. Yeah, but you do. You do need in any type of artistic or even in sports, you know, to if you're going to be the best at something, you do need that confidence, that bit of ego. I just feel when I say they pushed her into more diva status is because a lot of the things that she was getting persecuted for because uh, i can't think of a better word at the moment yeah. was, was stuff that wasn't really out of her control you know if if her body is not allowing her to sing at a particular level you know she's got bronchitis or what have you and she still goes out there and does the best that she can you you can't roast her for for not giving you you know 115 percent when she's already given you 110 it just right, wasn't right. at the level you expect and i feel like moments like that and even when she gets let go, I think the first time and the way how the owner tries to spin it in in the media and you find out in the letters that she has her own view and then there comes a point where she starts talking to the press and she's like, well, I'm let go so I'm just going to start letting you know exactly how I feel about yeah, things no, and it, stuff like that. But, yeah, but again, people, people will look at it as her being it, yeah. a diva and not handling it. It's like, well, no, she's, she's sticking up for herself. You know, they, and sometimes it gets a little misconstrued, that's all. But sometimes those personal insights of hers, I mean, let's face it, none of us are perfect. We all have those moments when the world is against us and it's terrible and it's so cruel. But when you when you have such a delicate sensibility as you have to when you're interpreting opera, when you're performing in that way, when you have that kind of delicate sensibility, sometimes it doesn't work in your favor uh, personality-wise. And I'm just saying those are the many sides for her. Yeah. Sure. And I, I would expect that of anybody. I think that any uh, – if if all of my favorite artists in all the favorite aspects of, of art, you know, if they all ended up having that, that level of feeling sorry for themselves at certain times, I wouldn't be surprised. Mm-hmm. But you, you can't – you know, you can't have that kind of ego and not – have it balanced off with something a little more, more delicate in you. Yeah, and especially when things go a little sour with Onassis and, <laughs> and the impact it has, and especially when a, a famous Kennedy mm-hmm. comes in between them, you know, it's just seeing the, the mix of sadness, rage, ego all kind of swirl around. It, it's just fascinating. Like I, I knew very little of her yeah. going in. Or yeah. Actually, I knew nothing of her going in. And yeah, walking either. out, I was like, oh, like... I'm a fan. <laughs> I'm, I'm Team Callus. <laughs> All right. So that's Maria by Callus. And that is, like I said, it's opening tomorrow, um, October 26th in theaters. 
And so I'm just wondering, uh, Mr. Courtney Small, who has seen so many things, is there anything else you'd like to highlight this um, week? There's two that I can, I think, well, uh, I'll do the one that I believe is still in theaters. It's called The Oath. And it was a, it's a dark comedy um, written and directed by Ike uh, Barinholtz, who's an actor slash comedian. And the film is, I guess, a satirical look up at our very turbulent political times. So the premise of the film is this couple um, played by Baron Holtz and uh, Tiffany Haddish from Girls Trip are happily married and the government decides that they're going to institute a presidential oath that citizens are encouraged to sign where it basically means states that you will support the president regardless and you will stand up for the president even when people try to tear the president down. I know a very oh, far-fetched, wait, wait, no. very far-fetched premise. Don't give the guy, don't give 45 ideas. Stop. Well, that's, hey, that's who, the who? premise of this film. And you, they what a great idea. They essentially have a year to before, I guess, the oath comes in effect. And they agree as a couple they're not going to sign it. And slowly as they reach approach the deadline, which is, I think, um, the day after Thanksgiving, they start to have issues because, you know, Thanksgiving, family all together. Some people want to talk politics. Some people don't. And they start to realize a lot of them have signed the oath. And then some government officials show up just as reports are um, being spread that people who allegedly didn't sign go missing. So there's just a lot of tension. And the film gets a little dark after that. But... I, I thought it was quite funny. Uh, it it really does talk about our time and also how, you know, to use the, the phrase on both sides, how we've allowed politics and our obsession with breaking news and Twitter and, you know, we we panic at every news report, even if it's insignificant on, you know, whether you're liberal, independent, Republican, what have you that everyone is so tense and so heightened that we're we're losing sight of what really matters. And even basic liberties, basic human decency, we've kind of lost sight of. So it's a really interesting film. And then regardless of your political views, I think you should see it because everyone will get a little something out of it. And it's, yeah, it's funny for, that, for that a dark comedy. sounds important, yeah. Reminded me a lot of films like, you know, The Last Supper and... Oh, there was another one I was thinking about, like just really kind of sharp, dark comedies that make you laugh, make you cringe. But make you think. Make you think at the end of it. And you, you know, for a film all about politics, you don't feel exhausted by the end of it. You're just like, oh, I felt like I had a break from politics, even though I was engulfed in politics within the film. So I think that's worth seeing. And the other film that well, most people have seen based on the amount of money it made was Halloween. I saw the new Halloween. Okay. Uh, which is fine. It's entertaining. You, know, I know that's <laughs> you should not, see his face right now. It's not the... He's like, he's like ah. I had, I had a good time watching it. I don't know if I will remember too much of it. Like it, It's not one of those films that lingers in your, your reign for long. It, it takes place 40 years after the original John Carpenter, and it pretty much ignores all the gajillion sequels that have come since. So in this world, it's just the John Carpenter film and this new one. Does that work? It does. It does. Um, David Gordon Green directs it. 
Uh, they add a little bit more humor. They up the body count, obviously. <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis's character, uh, Laurie Strode, is back, and she's suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome. So it's she's very reminiscent of um, Linda Hamilton in the Terminator films, where she was a victim in the first film, and she's determined not to be a victim again. And even though Michael... This is one for our times, right? Yes, and even though Michael is locked away... She's preparing in case the day he breaks out or comes back. And, of course, things happen and Michael's set loose again. And you have to see. So you see how Lori, her daughter, who she's got a complicated relationship with, and her granddaughter all kind of interact with Michael Myers. And, you know, the town deals with Michael Myers running loose. Okay. So you said, you know, it's not really memorable as a film. It's, it's entertaining. A, it is entertaining. As I, horror. As if someone is a uh, you know a f- fan of the horror genre, how does it stand up? If you're a fan of the horror genre, I would say the first one is better. Like it's not a scary film. It's this one. Yeah, this one is not. If you if you're if you're the type of person who doesn't like really scary movies, um, you you like your horror more more like a thriller with some fun, some laughs and stuff. Then this is the film that you see. If you're a a staunch you know, purist, you still see it, but it's not going to, it's not going to change the genre. You know, it's not one of those films, like, th- there's been a lot of decent horror films in the in the last several years. Even something like Hereditary, which I know people either love or hate with uh, Tony Collette, there's a lot of interesting things in that. There's a lot of really kind of creepy elements where this film was like it's fun it's fine you know it's it's a it's a mike mike myers horror halloween <laughs> film there's there's not much deviation well, what about that that up um the higher body count is it gorier well yes it's it's, it's slightly gorier than the first one but you know it's because some people you know they they thrive on that that's the gory films there's some interesting things that happen I, there's one scene that i would i guess would be particularly gory but even when it happens it's done more in a kind of comedic way and they they do an interesting thing with jack-o'-lanterns that's all i'm gonna say but out, <laughs> but outside of that it's not really that gory like people people die if you've, if you've seen any other halloween film the deaths aren't that shocking there's nothing that really you you go home shaking. Oh man, I can't I can't sleep tonight. It's like people go, they have a good time. To put it in perspective, in my theater, some people brought um, a couple brought their young children who I would assume are maybe like ten and eleven. Okay. And those kids walked out fine. <laughs> they, they, they were not traumatized. I didn't hear anyone screaming. Like it's just it's it's fine. It's it's fun, but okay. that's it. And there's nothing wrong with a Halloween film being fun, especially after we've seen so many horrible sequels. That it's it's a solid sequel. It's just it is what it is. All right. Well, that sounds good. Sounds like I may I may even be able to handle. That. I think you actually would be able. <laughs> like little kids can handle it. Yeah, this is definitely one that you could. Watch. I have to go see the girl power that's happening. You know, with Jamie Lee Curtis and the two other generations of women. Which is interesting because I. Again, I'm coming from a male perspective. I didn't think the girl power was as effective as it could have been. Ah, um, uh, yeah, no, but you're an astute critic, so no, I but, that, would, but I, would I have trust your I have talked here. to um, several women who have seen the film, and they actually really liked the the girl power aspect. So you know, it, it worked for them, and if if it worked for them, then that's great. That's that's even better. 
It was just I felt like there's certain conveniences in the plot that by the time you get that rah 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 moment, it's like oh it's 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 good to see it, but I wished it was a little more fist pumping, like yeah, you know. And I just thought it was like, more girl power. There's yeah. nothing wrong. With, and there's nothing with a guy wrong saying that. he wanted more girl power. See, this is why I like I working know. with you. You're all right by me. And I say <laughs> this is a film that you would enjoy. All right. Well, there you go. Now we're ready for Halloween, and we're done with the show. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Please come back and catch us next week.